that was a juvenile sea turtle surfacing. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. How are you? Welcome back to the podcast that I've teased you about for a long time, the Raw Safari Podcast. That's right, y'all. This is a big one. You may remember if you follow along on Instagram, and like, if you don't, what the heck are you even doing right now? That when I first got to California, I did an interview and I bragged about it and said I was so excited to share it with y'all and that it was unlike anything, not only that I've ever done on the podcast, but unlike anything that I even knew existed. This episode is that one. Bum, bum, bum. And yes, I've been hanging on to that clip of Jamie Delk saying bum, bum, bum for just a moment such as this. That's all the way back from the season one finale, and I have just been sitting on it waiting for that moment. You're welcome. But so we're going to keep this intro real short. Uh, like I said, make sure you're following along on Instagram as well as Facebook and Twitter at Raw Safari. Uh, on TikTok at Raw Safari Pod. I don't really do much there, but hey, whatever. It exists. And um, also you can check out the website for uh, merch and stuff, rawsafari.com. Also have a fundraiser going on right now that you will see on all the social medias and it helps Red Panda Network. So go do the thing. Okay, cool. Got that out of the way. Today, I am bringing you my interview with Cassandra Davis of Aquarium of the Pacific, but we are not at the aquarium. That's actually going to be next week's episode. Y'all, I don't even know how to tell you this, but there is a population of mostly juvenile green sea turtles that lives in the wild in a river in Los Angeles. And today, you're going to learn all about them as we stand on the banks and see these little sea turtles popping up. This is amazing. You're probably wondering, did John manage to stay professional and keep his cool when he started seeing sea turtles in the middle of an interview? And those of you who know me well by now know that the answer is... Heck no. I squeal like a crazy person. My voice shoots up multiple octaves. But the story of these sea turtles is so cool. The story of the rebuilding of the wetlands around this area and just the cohabitation of nature and very not nature. We are talking downtown Los Angeles, California. It's it's beautiful. I loved this day so dang much, in part because I actually remembered to wear sunscreen. Proud of me? You should be. Anyway, Cassandra's title at the aquarium is the manager of volunteer services, but we don't really talk much about what it means to volunteer at an aquarium. It definitely comes up, but 
We are just talking sea turtles and conservation, and this one is real freewheeling. As a matter of fact, when we started walking, I didn't even really think we were starting an interview, and then Cassandra just started talking. So uh, this one's going to start with uh, kind of some background on what's going on, and then at some point I'll get to my usual tell-me-who-you-are bit. But uh, what she was saying was just too cool and too good to not record and, and put in the interview. So I am just so excited to share this with you. But uh, I guess first I still got to do my ad, so here's that. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamer Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com studios. So one quick note about this episode, as I mentioned, this is happening outside, so I'm using my handy-dandy handheld recorder. You know, the audio isn't the same as when I'm sitting down and rocking out with my cool microphones and stuff, but trust me, y'all, it is worth it. And actually, if I say so myself, I think it sounds pretty dang good. Okay, and yeah, that's that's all I have to say about this. Let's get to it. This episode, I mean, you'll hear it. This is one of the coolest things I have ever done, and I am so excited to share this with all of y'all. Enjoy. Sea turtles in the river. Yes. We are not exactly in a river right now. We are at the mouth of a river, and rivers are these huge, long things from here. We can actually see some of the mountains that the rivers come from in the snow melts that brings it down, brings down the San Gabriel River in particular, down from the San Gabriel Mountains on the other side of Los Angeles, all the way through Los Angeles. For anybody who's been to Los Angeles, it travels down the 605 freeway, basically, and it comes out here. We're only about a mile from the ocean, so the ocean is behind us now. Okay. And the river part that we're talking about is the mix of fresh and salt water and what becomes wetlands or marshes or swamps, however you want to call it. But <laughs> wetland is literally land that is wet. We're standing on <laughs> land that has been very wet and dried. We can see footprints of some coyote that, that trampled by and people as well. And we can see this kind of swampy area uh, for the alkali meadow. And in front of us is a small pond that has a lot of seagrass and that seagrass does a lot for us. It does a lot for the turtles as well. So the turtles that we're going to see are living in a saltwater area. Right, right. Even though we call it the river because it's this bottom portion of the river, the mouth of the river, where it mixes in with the ocean. And these sea turtles are green turtles because primarily they feed on seagrass. The ones we're going to see are juveniles. They're, they're not yet fully grown. 
So their diet is omnivorous. They eat anything they can get their mouths on. Uh, but once they are fully grown, they will feed primarily on seagrass. And I think there's a better spot to take a look at this wetlands. We just had, we just had an egret land in them. Oh yeah, I see that. That's awesome. So, um, let's, let's introduce you to people. So, uh, tell me, tell me who you are and, uh, where you work and what you do there. My name is Cassandra Davis. I am the manager of volunteer services at the Aquarium of the Pacific. And that means I get to work with our amazing volunteers in all of the different areas that they inhabit, whether it is habitat restoration, like the wetlands that we're standing on right now, or working with our animals, or educating the public, talking to people about the ocean and introducing them to species that are weird and wild and wonderful, <laughs> which is some of my favorite uh, parts of where we work and, and what we do. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I recently took a friend to the, the San Diego Zoo and I was like, you know, what's your favorite animal? I'm going to you know, start there. He goes, I just like the weird stuff. And I was like, all right, buddy. All right. That's, that's cool. That's so, where you come to the aquarium. I was going to say, yeah, aquariums. I've, I've had some interesting experiences. Uh, yeah, a lot of weirdos there in the best way. Both, both uh, you know, staff and animals. <laughs> um, okay, but so what is, what is our goal for today? What are, we, what are we here to do? So we are not at the aquarium. We are on the other side of Long Beach. And we are near the coast, and we are going to look for the northernmost known population of green sea turtles. Now, we know that green sea turtles do travel up and down the California coast, especially during warmer seasons, but we are in an area where we know that they are here year-round, and that is kind of weird for a sea turtle. Because, that is very weird for a sea turtle. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little bit cold for them. And they are reptiles. They depend upon warmth. They depend upon uh, being able to have either warm water or warm sun to keep them warm. We've all seen probably lizards basking on a sidewalk or a wall, uh, maybe even had exposure to snakes or turtles, other reptiles keeping themselves warm. Sea turtles, they have to rely on their being warm enough habitat for them to survive. So this is the edge of their survivable habitat. And it's become a nice refuge for these juvenile green sea turtles. And when I say juvenile, I mean up to maybe 50 years old because they're generally going to be the size that is before reproductive age. And for a green sea turtle, that's anywhere between 25 and 50 years old. Okay. So what is it that, um, I have so many questions about this, <laughs> but um, what, what is it that prevents them, you know, from staying in this area once they become adults? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I don't know that there's anything preventing them from doing so, but it is at the edge of their ideal range. So they're kind of living at the extreme of their habitat right now. And it is not where their breeding grounds are located. Their breeding grounds uh, from genetic tests that have been able to do, be done from turtles in this population. We know they're tied down to breeding grounds down in Mexico, uh, down by Michoacan, 
and other beach areas down there. So they travel a long way after hatching to get up here. And again, they're at this area where it's not the exact ideal spot. Although they found a place that seems to be well protected from predators, offer food source, and they seem to be doing just fine hanging out here. Um, but they don't, they don't seem to stick around at their full-grown size. Gotcha. Um, although we do see a couple of them. Right. They might prefer areas just a bit further south where it's warmer. Makes sense. Makes sense. Do you think that that is something that will change over time with climate change, assuming that we, you know, keep screwing up the planet like we are? <laughs> well, that's a great question. And climate change is one of the biggest factors affecting sea turtles right now and uh, biggest factors that will affect them in the future. Uh, as far as them being up here because of climate change, again, they, they live a very long time. They have very deep ingrained memories and it's going to take them time to adjust to the changes in temperature. It is possible that the ones that we see up here will continue to uh, thrive for some time, but the changing climate will affect the nesting beaches where they're laying eggs, and that will affect future generations. They will still continue to go back to their nesting beaches. That is hardwired in them. But remember, they're going back 25 to 50 years later. And if the beaches themselves are too hot, then the eggs that they lay will not be viable. And that is probably one of the biggest threats to sea turtles at this time. It makes sense. Um, yeah, it's interesting to think about. I guess I've never really put much thought into the fact that because they are so instinctual that they will learn slowly. So if climate change happens quickly compared to a sea turtle's lifespan, it's not like they'll just be like, oh, cool. Now we can move it up, you know, a, a hundred miles or whatever. <laughs> they will just lay eggs that won't be viable. And that's really problematic. Yeah. yeah, interesting to think about. Um, now, you mentioned that this area here has um, freshwater and saltwater. It's where, and, and I've, I, I don't know if this, you know, I, I, my understanding is that is what brackish water is. is so is that, are, is this a population of sea turtles living in brackish water? And, or am I just misunderstanding that term? Well, that is a, uh, a good term. So brackish is the combination of fresh water and salt water. And at times of great rainstorms, which we do see on occasion in Los Angeles, but we don't see frequently. Uh, at times of great rainstorms, we do see that mix of fresh and salt water, that brackish water. And oftentimes, in shorthand, we will refer to some of these areas as brackish water. But the salinity of this water is pretty close to seawater, if not okay. equal to seawater. There's some fresh water flowing down from the mountains, but not enough to affect the great mass of seawater that is meeting it. Okay, that, make, that makes sense. Because um, I was going to say, that it just seemed weird to think about brackish turtles. and I know diamondback terrapins thrive on that, but in general, that is not a, not a common thing. Um, okay, very cool. Very cool. Um, let's pivot away from the turtles for just a sure. second and tell me a little bit about you. Um, did you always know that you wanted to do animal stuff? What, what was your path to this career? Oh, that's a great question. I always tell the students who I'm talking to who are planning out their life paths or early career professionals, I say there, there are two ways to tell my story. 
One could be a short paragraph on the back of a biography that makes it look like this was the destined path for me. (laughs) I absolutely grew up in my childhood hanging out at the L.A. Zoo. I took art classes there in the summertime and uh, did senior high school projects, basically hanging out with the elephants. Nice. I could absolutely write that short paragraph that leads me to a career at the Aquarium of the Pacific, working with ocean science. Um, But the truth is, there's been a long journey that has had many side paths and many different skill developments, many different journeys that I've taken on. And that's part of the fun about it. My, My bachelor's was in writing at NYU, and I spent many years pursuing writing and working in different areas and different fields. And then I went over to Oregon State University and pursued a master's of science in education with with a concentration in marine science. Nice. And so this is a path that I have taken a winding, meandering way to choose. And I love that. I love that you can absolutely... Uh, choose where you're headed and you can change that path if you need to. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm i uh, I'm a drummer and now doing a podcast about animals. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Life takes you different paths. And yeah. That's, that's fun. It's kind of the fun. beauty of it, I think. Yeah. Um, very cool. Very cool. When you, when you say you wanted to do writing, was it always science writing or do you have a secret fiction, uh, story series about, you know, what happens at the aquarium after dark? Uh, I, I don't have time for a secret fiction series at this point. Uh, too, too much time spent saving the world and, and talking to other people, but I, I did pursue a, a degree in dramatic writing. So I did screenwriting okay. for a while. Oh, nice. Very cool. Very cool. I have, um, I've, I've recently gotten very interested in, um, there are a lot of podcasts out from writers rooms of various shows yeah. and, um, I've come to realize that somewhere in the multiverse of existence, there is a John Rossi who found out how like screenwriting works and writer's room works and writer's rooms work. There we go. <laughs> and, and definitely took that path instead. <laughs> um, I find the process fascinating. I find the collaborative, uh, cause I love writing, but the one thing I've never liked about it is one of my favorite things in the world is collaboration. It's why I love being a drummer because I'm not out there playing a solo guitar and singing. I'm working with people, enhancing what they're doing, being a team, all coming up with arrangement ideas, whatever is best is what we do, you know? And, um, the more I hear about writers' rooms, I'm like, oh, that's like the written word version of that. That's so cool. Well, I want to say that there is this false notion that in order to be a writer, you have to be a Hemingway locked up in a cabin somewhere with your 12 cats that have too many toes. <laughs> and that that is absolutely not true. Whether you are uh, working in a, a writer's room, screenwriting, whether you're a scientific writer working with other scientists and collaborating... I guarantee you will rarely see a scientific paper that has fewer than two authors. Usually it's about 12 or more. Uh, Or you're writing for a paper or collaborating on marketing, collaborating on stories. There's there's a lot of collaboration involved in writing. And I, I think that that is absolutely this picture that is sold to you when you are in high school. Like you will be in a room all by yourself. Uh, you get to be Sylvia Plath or, or Virginia Woolf, and um, it's not at all what writing is about. It, it is a lot of collaboration, and, and science needs writers. Science needs communicators, and uh, 
it is it is something that you can do. You can be a writer and a scientist at the same time. Um, absolutely. Yeah, I've been fascinated at, at learning to be more of a science communicator with this podcast. And um, I, I sometimes feel like since I don't have like the fancy degree and stuff, even though I've, I've spent a lot of time studying animals now, but um, that I like to think of myself as a science translator. Yes. Um, you know, I will, I will talk to especially some of the, um, oh, I'm just going to say it, the, the more nerdy individuals um and of which there are many and i am one too like you know said with love um but and they will go on some long string of things and i will just put it into normal speak and every once in a while if i can't do it my 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 go-to is i'll look at someone and be like please remember i'm a drummer (laughs) say it so a drummer can understand (laughs) and it works that is so important because it, it doesn't matter what your passion is. If your passion is science, if your passion is uh, drumming, if your passion is a video game, if you are pursuing a passion or you are deeply involved in a career path, you are going to speak in a language that people around you understand, but uh, somebody from the outside might not understand. And so that that science communicator role, that is essential. Being able to bridge those gaps and, and even have the confidence to pause somebody who is speaking about something you are interested in, but speaking with terminology that you're not as familiar with. Just letting them pause and, and having them restate it is so important. So I'm really glad you're out there making making those moves and, and uh, blazing those pathways. It's well, thank important. you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So tell me what is one or two of the proudest things that you have done at Aquarium of the Pacific? Oh, goodness. Or like three. You can, <laughs> you know, I, I hate to narrow it down. I, I'm going to say every single time I hear back from one of our volunteers about where they are and what they're doing. Because we have an amazing cohort of volunteers and they are constantly shifting for life reasons, for career reasons. And whether it is hearing about someone who just got to spend time with their first grandbaby at a different institution in a different state, uh, talking about sea turtles or talking about fish or something else, or if it's talking to a new graduate who I got to know when they were a family volunteer or when they were joining us as a high school volunteer and hearing about their journey through college or uh, seeing them when they come back and volunteer on their summer and spring and winter breaks. It's it's so amazing to, to be able to find those stories and see all these different pathways people are taking because they are they are going from marine educators talking about sharks and rays and sea turtles to becoming lawyers and doctors and parents and teachers and it's it's just so wonderful to see all of the many journeys people take on that's awesome that seems to be a real theme with you you like the journey it is. Yeah, it's, that's it's cool. It's an important one. Yeah, that's awesome. Very, very cool. Is there anything else that you want to tell me specifically about the wetland area um, here? Sure. So we are standing right above Zedler Marsh, which is a small uh, marshy area. It's got a lot of green out in front of us just beyond the water. It's low tide right now. And that green is seagrass. And it's sprinkled with, unfortunately, some trash. 
that trash comes from all over Los Angeles. It travels a great distance. So talk about the journey. Uh, <laughs> the, any Anything you have on your street, on your curb, um, on your lawn, anywhere that uh, it gets into a storm drain, it comes right down the river and it comes out into the ocean. And that's where a lot of our trash does end up. And it is something that we see here in the wetlands. We see it right now, uh, perhaps at a more extreme point, because it is the nesting season for the Belding Savannah Sparrow. That is an endangered species that is only found in a few small areas. This is one of their small isolated islands. And we don't disturb them during that nesting time. So we don't go out and, and pick up the trash that washes up here during that time. We'll take care of it a little bit later in the season. And this is an amazing piece of wetlands. The fact that it exists at all is incredible because over 95% of our wetlands in California have been built over. But these wetlands are essential for us being able to breathe. They provide oxygen that we use every day. They are a tremendous carbon sink. So we were talking earlier about climate change and how that is tremendously affecting sea turtles right now and, and will affect them even more in the future. Sea turtles love to eat seagrass. Seagrass is one of the best ways to mitigate, to change this rampant carbon dioxide that we're putting into the air. We're burning the fossil fuels. We're burning the, the seagrass and, and the diatoms and, and other uh, marine algae of the past. We're putting that carbon dioxide up into the air. And the seagrass that is growing here, the wetlands that are around the world, they are absorbing that carbon dioxide at an incredible rate. So the more we can protect wetlands, the more we can restore seagrass and restore wetlands, the more carbon we can capture and put back into the ground and take out of the air that we put there. So it's kind of an incredible spot to be. And it is one of the most amazing things because it's surrounded by this very industrial landscape. And that's where we're going to see the turtles is in this very industrial landscape. We're going to see them in this channel uh, end of the San Gabriel River. The rivers in Los Angeles were channelized after some great flooding. And those channels have allowed Los Angeles as a city uh, to exist. So if you uh, have visited or are in or around the Los Angeles area, having these cement concrete channels that direct our water in very explicit ways, that has really made it possible for us to have cities. But the neat thing is right now, we have the technology to transform those channels and to create areas like these wetlands where the water can more naturally flow, where we can restore these, these natural habitats and create some areas of refuge for the urban wildlife, whether it's sea turtles or pumas and mountain lions or raccoons, whatever it might be, we can create these refuges for them and create these unique habitats that allow us to live alongside nature. That is really cool. How does one go about restoring wetlands? Well, 
there are a variety of ways that we work on restoring them. So we are on a pathway right now that allows us to bring people through the wetlands and educate them about wetlands. This pathway was built as we started to restore the wetlands area. We've been restoring by removing trash, of course, removing debris, but also removing uh, non-native plants and invasive plants from the area. We've been removing cement and pavement. Uh, there's a corner just around here. We could walk down this pathway a little yeah. bit uh, past here. It's one of our AOP meadows. Um, and we have slowly but surely removed the pavement, restored the natural dirt habitat, and then, of course, weeds sprung up. So we've removed many of the weeds and started to restore a more natural habitat to the area. Nice. So that's, that's one way you do it. You go out and you bring lots of people and you pull up some weeds and you scatter some seeds and you water. <laughs> which seems weird to do in a wetland, but as you're, <laughs> as you're starting native plants growing and, and trying to encourage what you planted right, right. to replace uh, those non-natives that were growing, you, you want to really like give them every chance at survival. So yes, we do sometimes water the wetlands. That is hilarious, but I love it. <laughs> of course, only when they're dry, not right. when they're wet. Right, right, right. And I... Uh, you go through it and you try to bring it back to its natural state as much as possible. And at the same time, try to create a space where people can live alongside nature. I think that's kind of the key to it. So Yeah, this is, this is easily the coolest example of anything like this I've seen. Because literally, I mean, is that oil? Yes. Right there. Like, right there. I, for those listening, it's insane that, that we're in this wetlands, and it looks like a wetland. It's exactly what you would expect. Um, I'll, I'll post some pictures on Insta. But um, then there's a fence, and then there's, you know, a little little bit of barrier, and then oil being extracted or refined. It looks like it's being uh, extracted over there. It is. And even as we were talking, um, the truck that you may have heard in the background uh, about five minutes ago, looked like it was a, an oil tanker driving by this remade wetland. <laughs> and it's like, it, it, I think it's so important uh, for us to learn and, and to understand how to, to conserve in such a way where, you know, you're not just kicking humans completely out mm -hmm. because obviously humanity isn't leaving Los Angeles. <laughs> it's just not going to happen, folks. But um, it's amazing that here we are in L.A. and... Boom, wetlands, and boom, industry, right next to each other. You can hear the, um, the pumps, and you can also hear the birds chirping. That's the building Savannah Sparrow in the background. So, awesome. And this wetlands area, the reason that it exists as a wetlands and not as a condo complex or a shopping center is most likely because of that oil pumping. This is an area where there was oil being extracted and we have been able to slowly but surely start to reclaim some of these areas. And along the river, we're also going to see two power plants. These power plants, they use something called 
Once through cooling, they're bringing in water. It's cooling down the turbines and they're pumping it back out. These are currently natural gas power plants. And there are a lot of different plans for applying modern technology to help make them cleaner and greener. So one of the big changes was they changed over from being coal plants to natural gas. Right. And there have been lots of different discussions about perhaps making them into uh, giant batteries for renewable energy. Nice. Instead of, instead of having uh, fossil fuel-based energy production. And we have technology to accomplish some of this. And that's kind of the amazing part about where we are right now in history. We are able to see what we do and how it affects the planet. And we are able to start to apply sometimes new and innovative technologies and sometimes technologies that have existed for decades or even longer. And we're able to modify our behavior. So we're going to be up and go over a bicycle path that stretches from the mountains to the ocean and be surrounded by power plants that burn fossil fuels, but also surrounded by the wetlands that are capturing that excess rambic carbon dioxide. So it's a really interesting place to be, and we're going to see animals that have been around since the time of the dinosaurs. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, weirdly, I, I, I remember you said um, that one of the areas where the sea turtles seem to congregate is around one of the power plants. Yeah. And I know that when I was in Florida, there was a power plant where manatees tend to congregate. Do you, is there any reason behind that, or is that just a coincidence? Or oh, Absolutely. A uh, reason behind that is that warm water outflow. Okay. So that makes sense. Yeah. You've, you've got a, a bit of a spa happening. Um, <laughs> this is not the only warm water location, actually. In the uh, wintertime, sometimes the turtles will congregate even further upstream, uh, near where the fresh water truly meets the salt water. Uh, because there is a channel that is over seven miles long. And if you've ever spent any time around a puddle of water that was sitting on concrete for a day, then you know that that puddle is going to be very warm. Right. The same thing happens in that channel. Okay. And so the water coming down off of there is also very warm. But the same thing happens in these wetlands. So those warm waters that the manatees might be congregating around or the turtles might be congregating around. They are new in terms of us creating them, but the warm waters in that area are not new. They have been around for hundreds and thousands of years as wetlands. Right. These smaller areas where we have the seagrass and you can see this kind of living mud that is here at low tide, these areas would be the natural warm water pools that they would be coming to. So the animals are not necessarily coming because of the warm water from the power plants. They're coming because there is warm water and has historically been warm water in those areas. We have just used different technology to change where that warm water is coming from. And we can change it back. Wow, that's really cool. That's, that's really cool. Um, anything else from here, or shall we shall we go sea turtle spotting? Let's go sea turtle spotting. Let's go. 
hop through a gate and see what we can have. So the neat thing about these wetlands and the restoration project is it is still fairly new. We've been working on them for quite some time to get them to this state and we'll continue working on them as long as we need to. So we're going to walk past a little nursery that we have to grow plants to plant out into the wetlands. So you'll see little seagrass seedlings, you'll see pickleweed seedlings, all kinds of native plants for California coastal areas. And that's creating this amazing thriving habitat for uh, not just the endangered sparrows or the sea turtles, but we get all kinds of migratory birds coming through here. We have uh, some neat spottings of things like osprey as well. And just outside of the wetlands area, we will see, hopefully, a couple of sea turtles feeding. Because even though they can't currently enter these wetlands, they do benefit from having that wetlands area. And they like to spend time at the outflow for the wetlands at least as much as they like to spend time at those warm outflows that we see. There's a hummingbird just hanging out on that Oh my goodness, there. nice. Oh, this area is beautiful. So is this done like, is this state lands that y'all are working in conjunction with the state or do y'all own this land or how, how does this project happen from a like that perspective well this is land that is being uh, reworked and reclaimed as part of the los Cerritos wetlands authority the aquarium's role is in really just supporting it and for many of us it's a passion project and trying to draw greater attention to what's happening. Um, so as far as the restoration goes, we're partnering with Los Rios Wetlands Authority and our group called Tidal Influence that helps to restore wetlands in and around this area. And then we have a partnership with the National Marine Fisheries Service, or uh, NOAA, you might also know them as. Yes. And the Los Rios Wetlands Authority and we do our sea turtle study to learn more about this fun little population segment. <laughs> so we're going to go through a gate that is open on the first Saturday of the month for public tours of the wetlands. Nice. As well as um, oh, restoration. And then it's open on Fridays and Saturdays. For public access as well from about nine to two. Okay, that's cool. I have this long running kind of joke isn't even the right word, but dumb thing that I say. <laughs> but whenever I'm at the ocean, I like to think that there are like sea turtles potentially like right there, just you know, I can't see them, but they know I'm there and they're they're coming to hang out. And when I get in the ocean, I'm always like, Yay, I'm standing in sea turtle pee. <laughs> Very diluted, but still. Um this is the first time I have ever walked past water where it's, like, legit a possibility. I mean, it is possible at the beach, but, like, <laughs> that expectation is being met, and it's, it's very cool. You can hear my voice is, like, up an octave from interviewer <laughs> level. <laughs> oh, this is so cool. Yeah, for me, sea turtles were the OG. They were the, the first animal 
when I first saw one at the National Aquarium, my brain melted, my heart blew up, and I was like, animals are the best thing ever. <laughs> it's a good one yeah. to have that reaction to. So this is a very unassuming spot. We're just going to hang out and see what we can see. Cool. It's low tide right now. So how deep does this get? Well, Both low and high tide, if you know. Depends upon the area. Uh, low and high tide, the distance can, can vary uh, 10 or more feet. Um, wow. You can see across the way kind of a dark line where uh, the normal high tide might hit. And then every once in a while we get some extreme high tides. Uh, you might call them, uh, well, they are called king tides, uh, usually in the winter time. And those can be over six foot uh, above, above the normal level or more. Wow. And then we sometimes get the equivalent of the opposite of that, where we get very low, low tides. So right now what we're going to look for here on the river, and I apologize to those who might look for pictures later. We'll try to give you some pictures, uh, but as far as pictures go, to see a sea turtle surfacing here, it looks like a little dot. Right. Um, oh my gosh. Oh my god. That was so cool. Oh my god. Yeah, because they're still juveniles, so they really are. It's not like the big head that you see, you know, with the full gro Oh shoot. That was so cool though. Oh, is that one coming up or is that something I can't I it's might trash. Be, it's trash. God, dang it. That's you know, a plastic bag. They always say that sea turtles get uh, you know, tricked by plastic bags because they think they're jellies, but can happen to humans too. It does look yeah. shell-shaped. I mean, come on. It does. No, it, and, and there's absolutely, especially once you've seen one and you're like, okay, I'm looking for pretty much anything in the river. Um, and then all of a sudden you're like, that, no, wait, that's something else. All and sometimes it'll be trash and sometimes it'll be uh, something else entirely. But yes, that is a plastic bag floating by. And right before that was a juvenile sea turtle yes. surfacing. That was the coolest. This is so cool. I'm so happy. Um, do people, okay, so how, how well known is this? Do people like all these people on bikes and running right here, do they realize and do they know that they can look right or left and see sea turtles? Some do. Okay. Okay. Some don't. Because <laughs> I know I never heard of this. I am, I'm so fascinated that this is even a thing. Granted, I don't live in LA, but still. So if this is your first time hearing about it, uh, even if it's somewhere that you live right next door to, please don't feel bad about it. Uh, this is something that, uh, as I mentioned before, it is a year-round population, but scientists didn't realize it was a year-round population until about 2008 and 2009 when we had the first data that showed that rather than what what we suspect, what was suspected, which was that they were coming, visiting, and then leaving, uh, we actually had sea turtles appearing uh, every month of the year. And that was because there were two, uh, what we would call citizen scientists or community scientists, so two individuals who were interested. And they got involved, and they, they came out, and they started uh, taking pictures. That was Hugh and Pam. They're volunteers at the aquarium. Nice. They are incredible. And there we go again. Oh my god, sea turtle. Hi, sea turtle. And so uh, they came out and they started taking pictures of what we just saw, which is a sea turtle surfacing for air. So when you see that, 
It's really just the head of the sea turtle. There was another one that just uh, surfaced I and went the, down yeah, over there. The... You can kind of see the ripple. You have to be careful, though, because there are birds here and, right. and other animals, so sometimes that ripple is not a sea turtle. Uh, to me, that, all the ripples are sea turtles. Like, As a matter of fact, when I get in the bath tonight, sea turtle, right there. <laughs> that ripple is going to be, yeah, no, that's just, yeah. Yeah, me in a bath bomb, and suddenly I'll splash my hand and be like, sea turtle. <laughs> I'm so happy. I think I'm up a full two octaves from where we started. <laughs> I am not one who, who wants to or needs to feel the need to hide my enthusiasm. <laughs> Good, because this is amazing. Holy it is so cow. exciting to to be here because these are what we call urban wildlife. Yes. So if you live in a city, whether you live in Los Angeles or Dallas or Chicago or New York, there is wildlife that has adapted to the environment we have built for them. And they're all around you. Whether it is a hawk perched on a building or a sea turtle in what used to be a wetland area, <laughs> it's there. And the trick is looking for it and seeing what you can discover. So as I mentioned, it was two individuals, two volunteers who came out and said, wait, we like spending time out here and we are seeing these sea turtles and they took pictures of their heads surfacing and that was the first data that showed us that yes there were sea turtles and you could come out and and perhaps get a picture of one which is really hard to do <laughs> did you see that fish yes. jump that was a cool fish just jumped. <laughs> um but it's it's hard to get that that picture of right them surfacing. Yeah. and i uh, you can come out and see that year round so we got together with some of the scientists who manage like sea turtle rescue and rehabilitation, sea turtle uh, habitat areas. And we said, okay, how can we, as the aquarium, help with finding out more? And there was a partnership, uh, Kim Thompson, who now heads up our seafood for the future activities uh, and our, um, and, National Marine Fisheries Service uh, representatives and uh, some students and professors uh, from Cal State Long Beach, as well as the Los Cerritos Wetlands Authority, all got together and, and thought up ways to survey the river, do some observations, see if we could uh, figure out, okay, there are sea turtles in the river. Can we figure out how many there might be? Can we Find out what they're doing or uh, what their behavior is like or if it changes throughout the year. And so we've been studying them ever since. That was almost 10 years ago now. Mm -hmm. And we have an amazing group of community scientists who come out once a month and survey the turtles. So you were asking if the cyclists know about it. We know that the ones who come out and are are on the river when we're surveying, they know. Uh, they, they ask us all the time. and It's really fun because you'll get a, a cyclist riding by and, and you can kind of hear them zooming by as we're talking and, and they'll just yell out, how many have you seen? And you yell back a number. And uh, it's just great fun because it, it really is. You're, you're going to uh, sit here and, and look at the water and stare at it and see how many sea turtle heads pop up. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really beautiful. It, like, it's really beautiful and calming here, kind of. I say kind of because I'm literally bouncing because I'm just waiting for another <laughs> sea turtle. But, like, other than that, this would be really calming. I could definitely just spend some time relaxing here if I wasn't bouncing like an idiot because I'm excited. But that's okay. 
Um, so what kind of studies are y'all doing and what kind of data are you getting? And does it apply? I mean, they are wild, so I assume you can apply it to other populations. So we are getting some really interesting information. Uh, and that information involves everything from size variation. So when we first started observing, uh, we started by measuring uh, medium and large heads. So if you can imagine, uh, a sea turtle surfacing is kind of the opposite of a tennis ball bouncing in a swimming pool. Like if you throw a ball into the water and you imagine how it kind of plops down and up, that's a surfacing usually. They plop up for air and plop back down again um, under the water where it's safe for them. And we measure their size comparatively to objects. So just by looking at the size of their head. A medium sea turtle, which would be in that juvenile stage, probably between 10 to 20 or so years old, maybe a little less, a little more, depending on how much food they had, etc. Um, they'll have a head about the size of either a tennis ball or a orange, depending on which you can picture better in your head. <laughs> and then a large one, that would be really close to, if not at or beyond that reproductive age that we're thinking about. And green sea turtles, they're, they're the largest hard-shelled sea turtle. Right. And they can weigh a lot. So these guys, uh, the large ones, their heads are about the size of a grapefruit or a softball. Again, depending on whether fruit or sports is a better analogy. <laughs> and then we, about maybe a year... A year to five years, so somewhere in there, I think it was probably around year three, we started noticing that there were some really small sea turtles that we were seeing. Oh. And by really small, I mean I have seen a sea turtle uh, as close as, as maybe some of those rocks in the water, mm -hmm. that surface that could have fit on the side on a piece of paper. Oh, wow. wow. The whole body could have fit on wow. a piece of paper. And it was one of those where your mind kind of goes, that wasn't really a sea turtle. And you're like, no, it had flippers. It was a sea turtle. <laughs> yes, unlike the bag I saw so, earlier, which yeah. weirdly didn't. Uh, so it didn't have flippers on that one. But <laughs> yes, uh, so your mind's like, no, I don't know. But those are the very small ones. So generally speaking, they aren't that small. Uh, their heads are usually about the size of maybe a lime or golf ball. And those we record as the small sea turtles. So okay. we've been recording that data, but it takes time. And that's where this being a community science project is so important because you can't get a grant to fund a study that's going to take 10 years to gather data, uh, much less one that requires 30 people in a two-mile radius, um, which is about what we get. Wow. With our, our volunteers, and that gives three people at a station. Um, lately, we've been uh, leveraging technology to help us start to identify individual turtles. So we have better camera technology so we can take clearer pictures. And we have uh, technology that allows us to match those pictures and actually map the scales on a turtle's face to individuals. So just like amazing. we have thumbprints our, or facial recognition right, on your right. iPhone, we can start to use that kind of technology in our observations in science. So we use a program called Hotspotter, which has been used to identify individual zebras in a herd. Like it's, it's kind of incredible what it does. And we are able to match individual sea turtle scoots uh, or scales on their face. 
from the pictures. That's amazing. So that gives us a better idea of population combined with having these 10 observation stations spread along, like I said, about a two mile stretch of the river um, to measure what we see. How many, how many sea turtles did we see popping up? Not just how many times did they pop up, but how many do we think we saw? So here we've seen four surfacings overall. Right. But it was uh, probably just two sea turtles that gave us those four surfacings, breaths of air that they took. And we're seeing that here at this outflow for that wetlands. And we see sea turtles here regularly, probably because it's a food source. But maybe also because there's a bit of warmer water coming from that wetlands area. Um, so it's really exciting that we're able to, to see the activity that we see here um, in such an urban area and see it uh, in part because of restoration efforts that are being made to bring back natural habitats. Yeah, that's it's one thing to read about it and hear about it. And each week on my podcast, I do an interview episode and then a zoo news episode where I do zoo and conservation news. And I talk a lot about restoration, but to see it and to see the effect and to see sea turtles and drilling for oil and power plants and uh, uh, my mind is just blown. Like this is one of the coolest things I have ever seen. And this is a great day to see it because, like I said, you can you can see the snow on the mountains in yep. the distance, uh, and uh, we also see cars driving over one of our many busy uh, inner or many bu busy streets that that passes by. Um, you know, just down that way is is the famous Pacific Coast Highway, uh -huh. uh, PCH. Yeah. And uh, a bit further up, you'll find some of our, our largest freeways. Mm -hmm. And you'll also find the concrete channels that are uh, famous as being the, the L.A. River or the L.A. River systems uh, because they include the L.A. River, the San Gabriel River, and a number of other uh, large and small river systems that have, have been paved over but are slowly starting to be restored so that we can have these natural spaces again. Yeah, it's it's really cool. The um, the bridge that you you just kind of pointed out. Um, so I came early because I was deathly afraid that this you know getting here wasn't going to work. We like <laughs> texted pins and all this stuff, and it worked. It was perfect. But um, and so I drove right over there, and just just five minutes down is a huge um, shopping area, tons of cool stuff. There's a Phil's Coffee, which is my favorite type of coffee in the country. <laughs> so I went, I got some breakfast. I ordered off their secret menu because I'm that guy. It was amazing. And, um, and I'm, I, was, I was literally seven minutes away from where we are standing right now looking at sea turtles in Los Angeles. I understand none of this while also loving and understanding it, you know, uh, the same. But even hearing your explanation, I'm still like, yeah, but this, this can't be real. Yeah. I'm clearly in bed right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's just, it's fascinating to see, you know, such incredible efforts working and to be there and to stand there and to still taste the coffee that was so close. You know, it's, it's, it's all fascinating. And it's, it's wild to see the potential, like to see the potential of uh, taking you know these, these levees that were built in the 1930s and finding ways to still have the protection that they offer to prevent flooding, while at the same time restoring areas of natural habitat for uh, 
different species that are living literally Turtle. in our backyard. Yep. Turtle, we can hear some geese starting to land. Those were always my favorite nice. as I was growing up. Uh, I, I did grow up in the L.A. area Okay. Uh, with mountain lions in my backyard and, <laughs> uh, and Canadian geese flying overhead. And that was always a winter um a winter ritual was was waiting to hear the first Canadian geese coming in. Nice. Um, and then going out on on our own community science when I was a kid, which was the Audubon uh, Christmas bird count. Yes, yes. And participating in in that uh, in that amazing endeavor, which has been going on for over a hundred years, to track our bird populations. Yeah, just talked about that on a recent episode. Actually, that's very cool. That you, yeah. Oh, is that? I think that's it. it that's turtle? Plastic bag. plastic bag? Turtle? It looks like it has flippers. How does a plastic <laughs> bag have flippers? Come on. But, you know, even though, so even though we're, we're pointing out plastic bags, uh, plastic bags are an interesting story because uh, here in California, we've banned the use of plastic bags. Um, and yes, we do still see some in the rivers. We do still see some in the areas, but not at the level we used to see them. And that change is amazing because you think about like what it takes to bring a reusable bag and more importantly to ban the use of, of plastic bags. They're so convenient. They make our lives easier. And in the end, they float down a river and out into the ocean and they affect animals that you might never see in your life. But the whole state of California voted twice to ban plastic bags. And I think that's pretty incredible because oh, yeah. that reflects what we care about. It reflects that, you know, we are ready to take steps to change our habits and change the way that we work in order to save even animals that we can't see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's amazing. And for those listening, if you haven't made the switch to reusable bags yet... I'm going to give you a hint on how you can do that because it is, it is hard. It's weird. You know, I've gone my whole life not thinking about it. And then I got in the habit of using reusable bags a couple years ago. And then when COVID first started, they said you couldn't and that because we didn't understand all the spread by touching stuff or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so and then, a turtle. oh, tea turtle and a plastic bag. And a plastic bag. Yeah. Don't <laughs> eat that. Um, and so I had to get back in the habit because I did really poorly again, after it was like, okay, mm -hmm. you can use reusable bags. And what I started to do, if you really want to train yourself quickly, if you forget your reusable bag and you're in a store by yourself and you have to, um, you know, take stuff out, if you don't have your reusable bag, just put everything back in your cart mm -hmm. and take it out and put it in your reusable bags. Or if you completely forgot to bring your reusable bags, put it in your car and have to walk it all in. <laughs> individually. I promise you, you will break the habit of forgetting your bags so freaking quickly, especially if you live in somewhere where it's snowy and cold when you have to do that. I'm speaking from experience here. Mm -hmm. But that was one of those things that I always wanted to do and always felt bad about forgetting. And then I just realized, even if you don't have your reusable bag, you don't have to use a plastic bag. And once I realized that and made it harder on myself, it was like instantaneous. And now I always have reusable bags. And if you go to zoos and aquariums, almost all of them sell really adorable animal-themed <laughs> reusable bags that are not only fun to collect and awesome to have, but other people will then be like, oh my gosh, is that a sea turtle? Is that a red panda? And then you can be like, yes, and check out the Rossafari podcast because you can learn more about animals. That's what I do. 
And many of those bags are, are made from recycled plastic as well. Oh, nice. And, yeah. And that uh, helps to close the loop because uh, one of the things that, that happens is that if, if we don't have a market for those recycled items afterwards, then, uh, then, then we don't have, have a purpose for recycling. So uh, those, those recycled plastics can, can be really interesting. And, and like you said, taking, taking that whole cart out to your car, I actually do that out of habit, but I live somewhere where the weather is very nice. <laughs> and I do it because in COVID times, like uh, in addition to just having the pressure of like trying to bag all your groceries while somebody else is waiting, um, in COVID times, I just want to spend as, as little time as possible in spaces that are not outdoors. Yes. And so I just push the whole cart out and then load it up into my trunk. I have my bags just situ- set out and I just put them into the bags. One, two, three. Nice. Um, Love it. Yeah. It's, it, it makes it a lot easier. That's very cool. What, uh, what would you say? I'm, I'm hearing and seeing, um, a lot of people commenting, you know, on social media lately, um, about how, you know, their airlines that to keep their, their spots have to fly 8,000 empty flights. And like, why does my bag matter? Or why, why should I use a, a metal straw if, if that's going to happen? And, and I have my own thoughts, but I would love to hear your thoughts on what you would say to that person. That's an interesting one. I think that we all do what we can and you have to be kind to yourself. You're, you're not always going to be perfect. Um, you know, if, if you're working out there to be plastic free, you're doing an amazing job. If you're, if you're going, uh, meatless once a night or, uh, uh, meatless for all but one meal, um, in order to reduce your carbon footprint, you're doing great. Um, if you make a choice to, to ride a bicycle, to work or to uh, walk to the store and save that car trip or uh, get an electric car if you're able to, um, you're, you're doing an amazing job. And I think that that's also been kind of a, a lesson from COVID as well. Like we, we do what we're able to do. And I would say that it's worth challenging those ideas. It's worth challenging those ideas that Okay, there's this big problem turtle. out there. Sorry. The no, turtle. there's definitely a turtle there. <laughs> um, there's this big problem out there, and and because there's this big problem, I can't make my small change. But you are one of, honestly, a few billion people, and there are other thousands of people, hundreds of people, who are also going to make those decisions and make those changes. There's that one surfacing again. Yep. And you absolutely can make a difference. You can make a difference in your community. You can make a difference in the people around you. And you you can make a difference for these turtles because, you know, we, we've we just been able to see one pop up about uh, three or four times now, which is really cool. Um, but... Each plastic bag that floats by these turtles was a decision made by somebody. And uh, you, you have those paths, you have those choices. And at the same time, you have power. You have power to speak to your community, your neighbors, your friends. You have power to speak to your elected officials who you elect 
and you have power to to make those sweeping changes. It was not one individual who sat down and said, I'm going to ban plastic bags in California today. It was many individuals working together and uh, many people who went to the polls and voted and, and made that change. And it's not one individual who has restored these wetlands behind us. They're still in the process of being restored. Uh, but it was many who worked together. And you mentioned uh, the Audubon bird count and how you talked about that. That was not one individual, even though it's named for one individual. It's named for a painter. But it was actually a group of ladies who got together and formed a social circle because they got tired of, of wearing birds on their head. Uh, it sounds kind of ridiculous right now. That's, that's basically how the Audubon Society formed. Um, actually, there was, there was just a, a white bird that, that uh, flew by, and, and that was really neat to see. It was a white bird with yellow feet. Yes. It's called a snowy egret. And if you ever spend time around uh, watery areas, I hope that you've been able to see one. And you've been able to see one because of that group of ladies, that Audubon Society that formed um, in the early 1900s. And uh, they formed because those snowy egrets in particular, along with many other birds, were being hunted. And they were being hunted for fashion. And they have these beautiful flowy feathers, especially during breeding season. They were being overhunted and they were disappearing. And the ladies got together and they said, we have to change this. And they did. And now we are able to see snowy egrets fly by us while we're staring at sea turtles in the middle of a very urban environment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and that's, that's pretty incredible. So I, I would never tell somebody that, you know, skipping that straw... Um, doesn't make a difference it absolutely does and it's also okay if you find yourself in a situation where for uh, COVID reasons health and safety reasons um, or just sheer like personal mental health reasons uh, if, if you aren't able to skip that straw that day that's okay too because you'll get it the next day and that's the important part is is that we all start uh, working towards something new and something different. Well, I loved that. Sorry to have interrupted it with sea turtles, but uh, <laughs> it was like so good, but I, I couldn't keep my mouth shut. There but so many sea turtles, it was so amazing. Many sea turtles, it was so good. Um, yeah, no, but thank you for saying that because that has really been bothering me lately because I'm seeing it from like conservation people and from animal people. And I get the frustration. I really do. Boy, do I ever. But just because something else sucks doesn't mean we can give up. And like you said, I think it's really good to remember that when it comes to habits, you know, it's okay to not be perfect. I struggle with that with certain things in my daily life, not even talking about conservation, you know, eating healthy and all that. There are all kinds of things that I, I have to remind myself and learn that it's a, it's a lifelong process, not, not you know, a series of successes or failures. Um, but yeah, I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it. I, I really do. That was very well said. It's almost like you're a good science communicator or something. I don't, I don't know. Well, instead of saying all of that, I, I probably could have said something uh, short, like the enemy of progress is perfection. But 
I, you know, it, it is, it is something that, that has been weighing heavily on me as, as we, as we look at things like COVID, you know, what, what can we learn from, from history? What can we learn from past pandemics and, and what can we learn as we look to the future? Um, but the same goes for, as we look at climate change, um, it, it's sometimes hard to see something that feels so pervasive in our society and, and feels so intimidating because it is such a big problem. And although they were in their own ways different and smaller problems, I do try to hold on to um, the problems that, that we're facing us, and I'm going to date myself now, uh, but the problems that we're facing us as, as humans on the planet uh, when I was a child, and that was uh, the problem of acid rain and the problem of the ozone layer. And it seemed impossible, but it took a tremendous global collective effort, and we were able to do it. We were able to make changes that helped to preserve the ozone layer and stop the damage that was being done. Uh, there is still a hole in the ozone. It opens up over uh, primarily Antarctica and, and sometimes pieces of Australia. But it is slowly but surely repairing itself. And that was something that seemed impossible when I was, when I was young. Absolutely. I mean, if you're of a certain age, you know the word chlorofluorocarbon, mm -hmm. like the back of your hand. And that's just not something that younger people, I guarantee you, some of my audience was just like, what did he just <laughs> But it, it was this thing that we had to uh, fight against, and, mm -hmm. and the world kind of came together to do it. We knew, we knew CFCs the way that you know CO2 now. Yep. And, and that is, it is important to at least keep that perspective of, We've been able to make these changes. And, you know, we are making these changes every day. We're standing on something that was built in the 1930s to redirect a river. That's incredible. Yeah. Like, the yeah. fact that somebody stood there and, and as, only, as only, I think, people can do and said, you know what? We're going to build here and we're just going to change the river. We have that in us. And... That's amazing. That's amazing that we are able to take these leaps of technology and take on these huge endeavors. And we have already shaped our planet. And now the challenge is leveraging the technology that we have to shape it in new ways that allow us to live side by side by the nature that we love. Um, because it is there. It's hidden, but it's there. And those opportunities are all around us. Absolutely. Although I will disagree slightly. Humans and beavers can redirect. Yes. <laughs> that is true. I try to keep it at least a little <laughs> bit light, you know. But I think, I think what you're saying is very beautiful and very hopeful. And, and I agree with you. Um, having been there and, and done that, not like literally myself, but having seen it happen. Um, I guess the one thing that, that gives me the least hope right now, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this, and if not, I edit these so we can just cut it, <laughs> um, is uh, it seems like there is, and maybe there was more of this when, when, you know, when we were younger and, and that was happening and I just didn't see it because I was a kid, but um, it just seems like there's so much denial, like mm. whether it's the COVID stuff, um, I, I literally know somebody who I was not close to, but like in my personal life, 
who is dead because they literally did not believe that COVID existed. And you hear these tales of doctors saying that, you know, people as they're dying are being, as the doctor's saying, putting you on oxygen, you have COVID. They're like, no, that's not a real disease. Tell me what's really going on. Um, and the same is true with climate change. I think less so now, but like, I don't know, that's just so intimidating to me. And what, what are your thoughts on, on that and how we can overcome that denial? That's an interesting question. We go deep sometimes. We go deep. <laughs> you know, I, I think the first thing that we all can do is, is keep talking to one another and keep talking to the people in your life um, because you're going to have differences of opinions. You're going to have differences of backgrounds. You're going to have differences of life and lived experiences. And those are all going to affect how you approach the world. And it's important that we keep sharing our stories and learning other people's stories. You know, try, try to talk to as many people as you can. I know I'm saying this to the person who talks to people um, all the time. But, but really, like, one of the things that I work with is, is I work with talking about the Pacific Ocean, which is really just one term for a zone of the world's ocean. Right. We, we are not a green planet. We are a blue planet. And we happen to be above the water, but the majority of our planet is not. That ocean is affected by people in so many, well, people in every country and people in every area of the planet. Whether you are on the shoreline in California or you are in the middle of the United States or you are finding yourself somewhere in Egypt or Russia or Africa or Chile or Argentina. You, you are connected to the ocean. You are connected through water and you are connected through air. And no matter where you are, I think we all have in common that we are seeing change in the world. Whether it is the realization that the fields you played in as a kid have been paved over and are becoming houses or the realization that the snow you loved is no longer or the snow that you just kind of got tired of shoveling is no <laughs> longer uh, the same snow it used to be, whether it is less, which it is in some areas, yep. or more because of changing climate flows you see these changes. I think that particularly in the past 20 years, we've been able to see tremendous change in our planet. And I think that as humans who have the capacity to change our planet, we also have a responsibility to care for those natural spaces and to do what we're able to do to bring them back. Because no matter where you might be or what you might believe or what your neighbor might believe, you can see that we have lost many of our forests. We have lost many of our pristine spaces that we enjoy. And we can do a lot to bring them back. We can also look at what technology we have and what we want for the future. 
know, do you want blue skies for the future? If you do, then there are some choices you can make. But on top of that, do you want to drive a fast car? Awesome. I have a solution for you. <laughs> Electric cars are so much fun. Oh, boy, um, they are amazing. Uh, so that that little blue car I had you follow—it's an electric Fiat. Nice. And uh, it it is just so much fun to drive. Nice. Um, so like we're at this point where we can we can have both. We can look at uh, how we support each other. Do do we have enough wealth to go around? Of course we do. How can we make that happen so that nobody goes to bed hungry? Um, I think we can we can talk to each other and and work on what we're passionate about. It doesn't have to be the same thing. You don't have to be passionate about sea turtles or reducing your plastic consumption or uh, divesting from fossil fuels, but you can talk to people about their passions and and where they want to go and and how they envision the future because we kind of live in the future yeah we do and that's cool that is cool um i think that's very cool that your car is electric <laughs> I, love that. I have a hybrid as my day-to-day -day car this the suv that i'm hearing today is my i need to take drums across the country car that's it, important too yes and i would like to get like eventually i want to get an electric um suv i just it's not in the cards right now because those things are not cheap. But uh, and you know, they even I, just started existing. Yes, exactly. Like they didn't exist ten <laughs> years ago. That is so cool. It is so cool, and they will be cheap. Like one day we'll all be laughing about this, and like you know, someone will listen to this and be like, "Everyone has an electric car. What are you talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I had to realize that. Uh, so I have a, a seven year old, and um, we had a rental car, and. I had to explain what stopping for gas was. <laughs> so <laughs> that's astonishing. That's kind of like it blew my mind. I was like, no, this is a this is this is normal. Okay, it's not normal in your life. So we're gonna explain what's happening right now. Um, yeah, that was wild. That's and, really cool. And we have you know we have airplanes that have been flying over us, and and that's wild too. You know that that wasn't happening. A hundred years ago, right. and I again, you know, humans looked at it and said, "You know what? I think I can fly," and we did. <laughs> um, but we also have amazing technology that's being implemented with new materials and uh, new fuel sources to make flying greener. And uh, it's it's not happening overnight, and there are still, as you mentioned, uh, speed bumps and roadblocks, but. We can advocate for uh, quieter roads. We can advocate for uh, quieter airplanes and more fuel efficiency and uh, advocate for pl planes not having to fly from point A to point B if they're empty. Um, because that certainly doesn't have to happen. There are better ways. Yes, there are many better ways. I can think of so many better ways. Just not doing that for for starters, be a good way. But yeah, no, very cool, very cool. Um, it, it's interesting. Uh, I, I have a seven year old, and it's it's interesting seeing the world through their eyes sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, everything that they live is normal to them. Yeah, and you know, Miles uh, has never been to school, not wearing a mask. Right. So he 
doesn't understand when people are like anti-mask. He's like, well, but that's, that's life. Like the first year that he gets to go to school without a mask is going to be weird and different for him, you know? And, and he's very used to the whole like, oh, today's digital because something happened and somebody has got a thing and, and, you know, he just kind of rolls with it. Like it's just life. That's what he knows. And it's really interesting seeing that versus, you know, I'll be talking to his mom or something and we'll both be thinking like, Oh, what is this doing to his psyche? What is, because to us, it's, it's crazy. You know, I, uh, you know, that's not what school was, but that is school for a seven year old. I, I think that's, it's kind of interesting to see that perspective. Oh yeah. Um, and, and my volunteers have, have met my seven year old virtually <laughs> uh, and some of them in person. The, the turtle volunteers have known him growing up because, uh, he's, he's been part of this, uh, coming along and tagging along to this program for his whole life nice. and, uh, before he was born. Um, and, and so he's, he's had a chance to meet many of my volunteers on Zoom, and, and he's had a chance to teach them about how to use Zoom and how to mute yourself. <laughs> mute yourself. Um, or he comes in and unmutes uh, us and, and says what's on his mind in that moment. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's it's wild to to see what's what's normal for them, and and for him, it's normal to to come out and and look for sea turtles mm-hmm. once a month. Um, so that's kind of exciting because he's he's 100 percent invested in uh, in wildlife and in conservation. Um, so so far, it's working. That's awesome, <laughs> and it's it's amazing to see like also how um, I don't know. At least like in Miles's case, like there's no shyness. There's no embarrassment about it. You know, I spend more time than most cities worth of humans uh, at zoos and aquariums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's constant misinformation and there's con- from, from, from people standing there and, and saying incorrect things and, and just misunderstanding or being callous or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I will interrupt if it's like somebody banging on the glass or something, or if somebody genuinely seems curious, I'm happy to share information. But so many times I will keep my mouth shut in order to not be quote that guy. Mm-hmm. And yet, Miles, anytime we're ever at, like, a red panda exhibit, if somebody says, I want a, a, a red panda as a pet, he instantly goes, excuse me, um, red pandas do not make good pets. They are an endangered species, and also they will poop everywhere. And no panda pets, because, you know, I volunteer for Red Panda Network, and he knows that's, like, our big thing. Hashtag no panda pets. And, and he just blurts it out. And I'm like, yes, little dude, you get it. And it's honestly inspired me to be a little more vocal, but then sometimes I look at the hulking 6'8 figure who's saying, yeah, you can have a red panda. And I'm like, I'm going to stand over here now. (laughs) Oh, no. Kids are wonderful. Yeah. Um, Alan's favorite animal is the fusa. Nice. Oh, so good. uh, He ran right past the jaguar at the San Diego Zoo. (laughs) Like, literally right past the jaguar. watched him. Oh, nice. And he ran down to the fusa to see the fusa. And then he just stood there for half an hour correcting people on how to pronounce it. Um, So, yes, I I feel like they would get along just fine. Yes, I love that. Alan's a big Wild Kratz fan. Nice. uh, That is is our life, uh, making Wild Kratz vests and and tokens and all of that. Very Um, cool. But, yeah, it's amazing. And um, one of the things I love at the aquarium is is we have this family uh, volunteer program where uh, our... We have exhibit interpreters who are there translating what you see uh, to 
what you know. Sure. Um, because when you first see something like a spiny lump sucker, which sounds very intimidating, it is a tiny, tiny fish, smaller than a golf ball, that is adorable. It's rounder than a golf ball, too. <laughs> um, but when you first see a spiny lump sucker, you're like, I don't, I don't even know what I'm looking at. This, is, this defies the laws of physics. <laughs> And so exhibit interpreters are there to, to talk about the animals and, and introduce you to anemones being alive and uh, what, what makes a sea star. And we have families who join us as aquarium ambassadors and exhibit interpreters. And uh, so you've got kids as young as nine who are talking to uh, kids their age. But they're also, they're absolutely talking to uh, the six foot eight uh guest who just walked up and and they're telling them about uh how to how to touch a uh a moon jelly and not to be afraid because uh, (laughs) they're not they're going to sting you but it doesn't hurt because their stinger doesn't get through your skin so to see to see nine-year-olds uh and 10 and 11 and and uh all the way up um talking to everybody is is just amazing and it's incredible and uh what's neat about about what I do and, and my job in volunteer services is I've gotten the chance to see nine-year-olds grow up and, and go off to college or uh, start their own web series or create their own web apps and, and uh, become artists and creators and scientists. And it's just amazing to, to watch that growth and, and see that opportunity. And I can't imagine... Um, having those opportunities anywhere else that's really really awesome okay so we just saw probably a turtle that actually has a name so tell me the story okay so this turtle um is an interesting one it it has a particular way that it goes down and i saw its tail um and the back of its shell kind of surface uh as it, as it was going down so it dives kind of like a duck and it is a turtle um it is not the only one that does this, but uh, there is one in particular that does this that I do try to keep an eye out for because I have personally uh, seen this turtle uh, very up close and personal. Um, there was an instance where uh, a few years back we had a large training and we had some reporters here along the river and there happened to be a turtle that was surfacing rather strangely. And we figured out that it was attached to fishing line it had become entangled in the fishing line and that the uh the line was actually entangled in a piece of wood that had floated up by the edge of the river we were able to uh get down and with the help of of national marine fisheries service because they were on site as well because of the reporters (laughs) and uh they they are able to really they're experts in handling the sea turtles and that's really important because the sea turtle shell is it's, it's part of its backbone and ribs, and uh, it's really part of the turtle. And if you handle them incorrectly, you can, you can hurt them pretty severely. Um, so fortunately, they were on site. Our National Marine Fisheries Service uh, people were able to help to, to bring in the turtle. And this happened to be a time when we had quite a few volunteers who we were training as well. And so uh, we brought in the turtle, brought it up onto a, a dry area, uh, we were able to cut away the fishing line, which in and of itself was an adventure because we discovered nobody carries pocket knives anymore. Fair, fair. Um, except for now, half of our sea turtle volunteers <laughs> who carry a pocket knife just in case of this particular emergency. Um, so we were able to uh, disentangle the sea turtle, and in disentangling it, 
um, did come to find out that it it was missing a rear flipper. And so it only has three flippers. And uh, that's probably one of the reasons that it has that particular uh, deck dive. Other than that, it was perfectly healthy. It was evaluated by the, the fishery services guys. We took pictures, we measured it, and we were able to release it right back out into the river. And so we see it from time to time. And I'm always on the lookout for a sea turtle that, that dives down a little bit funny. Um, just in case it's that one. Right. And so I was pretty oh. excited to see that. And there's another turtle oh. popping up. That's a, nice. a bit of a smaller one. Yeah, that was pretty fun. So, um, yeah, so that's the story of Tripod, huh? Yeah. He, <laughs> he has been affectionately named, uh, nicknamed Tripod. Right, right. Uh, and uh, most of our other turtles in the river have uh, references that are uh, numbers and uh, referred to him that way. But it's kind of fun to, to be able to try to spot him. That's awesome. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rock Safari Poop Story. Oh no, a theme song. Oh yeah. Oh, I'm excited. I, you know, I will just share that uh, in... We talked about many paths for careers. Yes. And as I was exploring uh, things that I love, I worked for the uh, International Bird Rescue and Rehabilitation Center uh, over in San Pedro. And I, I was a volunteer there. I went there every weekend and I helped. And it is a very glamorous job. You get to work with loons and pelicans and egrets and ducks and geese, all kinds of flighted birds that happen to be around the water. But you also spend a lot of time cleaning up poop <laughs> and dodging poop. So I will tell you that if you're ever caring for a loon in particular, you stay at least 10 feet away from the back of a loon because they have projectile poop. Oh, fun. And it will shoot out like you've just accidentally squeezed a bottle of conditioner. <laughs> um and shoot right for you. So that's one of the one of the first things they teach you as you're handling a loon is just watch out who's behind you or what's behind you. Make sure it's not any important equipment because you will end up having to clean that up at some point in time. <laughs> so whenever somebody asks about, about poop, I, I do tend to think of my time at the Bird Center. It was also what it, where I learned that uh, animal rehabilitation probably was not for me because... I got to a point where I could not tell that I smelled like pelican poop. <laughs> um, and I was told, okay, you, you can't actually get in this car at this point in time <laughs> until you've showered at least five times. And that was when I realized, okay, it, maybe it's it's not the glamorous life for me. Um, but it was a, a ton of fun, and, and they do really important work. Um, they've, they've helped us to uh, keep our staff trained on um, old bird rescue, for instance, so that we can clean up if, uh, if there do happen to be oil, oil spills, which uh, we were able to, to help out with uh, from the aquarium um, nice. pretty recently. So, unfortunately, that's, that's kind of a, a side effect, again, of, of the electricity and the digital age that we love is much of it's run off of oil and uh, petroleum products um, but we have we have started to move away from that and that's really exciting too absolutely awesome love it uh, anything else that you wanted to shout out quick uh, before we, we say goodbye no, thanks for uh, 
Thanks for traveling around and, and hearing stories. I think it's a lot of fun to uh, to be able to share and, and listen to others. And I'm really excited that I'm really excited that podcasts exist. <laughs> Me like, too. That's just such a cool thing that's uh, that we can just go through and, and find knowledge and information from all different areas. So, um, yes, we've. We've become a fan of your podcast. Uh, I know that um, we're, we're fans of, of a couple of others in the house. And, you know, like I mentioned, there's there's all these neat ways to learn more about our planet and explore the world. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Just a blast. Thank you. And can't wait to have you at the aquarium tomorrow. Y'all, I don't. I, words. Words are hard. There are sea turtles in a river in Los Angeles, and even having spent a lot of time with them, I still have a real hard time processing that fact. It was so amazing. But, you know, maybe the most amazing thing about that episode to me wasn't actually the sea turtles. No, that's a lie. That was, that was definitely the most amazing thing. But, um... You know, Cassandra's take on how we can all make an impact as an individual and how she said that the plastic bags that we were seeing in the water were choices that an individual human made that were threats to those turtles right there. That's the answer that I've been looking for. If you've been listening to this podcast for a long time uh, or even just a short time, really, then you know that I've been struggling a lot lately with, with how we talk to people who feel defeated by the horrible big corporate things that are happening and like what's the point of being one person trying when you know airlines are just disasters or whatever. And that right there put it in such perfect, like, relief for me. It was such a beautiful visualization because literally that bag that was a risk to that turtle that was right in front of my eyes was a choice that an individual made. And that is amazingly impactful. Now, as Cassandra said, she was excited to see me the next day at the aquarium. Well, she did, and we sat down and do a proper interview about the aquarium. So you're going to have to wait till next week for that one, but I cannot wait to share that with you as well. Uh, aquarium of the Pacific is a pretty, pretty magical place on its own, you know, uh, aside from the fact that they knew where sea turtles lived in a river in Los Angeles, because that is a thing. That exists. I would like to say thank you to Laura Shank, my Red Panda level patron. And I'm really looking forward to sharing next week's adventure with you all as well. Uh, thanks for being here, y'all. I appreciate it so much. Remember, the word credits backwards is Stydirk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.